Hello and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast with me, George Breer, and my co-host, as always, Sports Pro's news editor, Tom Basson. Now, as a senior content manager here at Sports Pro, my job is to put together our in-person and online event agendas. And this week has seen the conclusion of our OTT USA event. Tom, we have caught up across the last couple of days at various points of the event to debrief and review some of the sessions. But how have you found the last two days as a whole? Yeah, now as we sort of sit in our um, our suite inside uh, City Field, feels like I've been here for a week. There's been just so much to think about and go away from. We look at the US industry all the time, like editorially and as a business, but it's different when I think you get your feet on the ground and you talk to people and you hear what they've actually got to say when it comes to being put on the spot. I mean, we're sitting here a day after Bally Sports Plus, a, a speaker who we had in Michael Schneider, literally he stepped off stage and then... A massive story broken that they were declaring bankruptcy like you don't you don't get that if you're not here you're here over the sort of next i don't know 45 minutes or so a bit of the experience that we've had and some of our takeaways as with us as they were happening in real time i agree it's definitely been a case of just the sheer size and scale and breadth of the of the sort of the media and broadcasting industry here is so difficult to get your head around right as you said there's just so many moving parts so many different sort of echelons that exist within that ecosystem and it definitely feels as if we're at a bit of an inflection point when it comes to the u.s market right things are changing as you say all the time quite literally in the case of bally sports um and the the models are shifting um and it's that state of flux that i think these events are so important where it's understanding what has come before and where the challenges exist with that but what the best are doing moving forward and how you know you can adapt strategies and models to, to sort of be fit for the new era, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and with that in mind, shall we let people just listen? Let's do it. Tom, I can see you're smiling and refreshed after a lovely Caesar salad. How have you found this morning's sessions? It's been really, yeah, it's been really interesting. Uh, it's a super different feeling event to uh, the last time we checked in from the floor. We're currently sat in the... Main network meeting area at City Field in Flushing, Queens, and had a couple of some really big heavy hitting stages. So kudos to you, George, for putting that agenda together. The big takeaway for me, or the, the main session I was focusing on this morning, was uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, hosted by our friend and fellow podcaster, Steve McCaskill. Really interesting to kind of get a different perspective on Warner Brothers. Uh, we usually hear quite a lot about the European operation, the Eurosport side. We heard quite a lot about the narratives around their Discovery Plus launch, but we generally haven't heard so much about what's gone on on the Warner side, I guess, rather than the Discovery side of that media company. So, yeah, really, really interesting to hear from uh, Louis Silverwasser, and I guess we've probably both got some thoughts on that session. As you say, it was a, a much more of a, a deeper dive on the Warner side of it than the Discovery, and no surprise to see that entertainment and storytelling um, is really at the heart of that brand. Louis mentioned that quite a few times, as that being their key sort of differentiator and their USP when it comes to their content. What I found really interesting was his views on the bundling and how he sees it as a really important part of the, the Warner Brothers Discovery ecosystem to be able to bundle their sports rights with some of their entertainment rights. And he used the example of HBO Max quite a lot. Obviously, most people listening to this will know HBO Max more for their TV series and their entertainment services, probably more so than their sport. But he really saw that platform as a complementary offering for both sport and entertainment. What did you think of that? HBO Max is an interesting one because it is used as a sports platform 
in the Americas in a way that it's not in Europe. It's a, it's a pure entertainment platform in Europe. So I guess it's kind of the ongoing narrative of what's happening with Warner Brothers Discovery and what they do with all of the products that they brought together under that merger. And I mean, we've generally tended to focus more on Eurosport and Discovery Plus and those brands a bit, but it's a really, really premium streaming product here that has top, top quality content. People refer to HBO standard as like it in entertainment. So it is a really strong proposition when it comes to adding in extra stuff. And if you were able to get that product right, it's essentially a really, really powerful tool, not just for acquisition, but for retention and all of those kind of things and metrics that the C-suite love so much. Just going back on something you slightly touched on there with the storytelling aspect. I mean, I guess what I found with Luis was it felt to me as if the Warner Brothers side of this is coming at it from a more traditional uh, approach. Like they seem less challenger. I mean, that's probably not that not, not that much of a surprise given their standing in the market. But also maybe a bit more conservative too. I definitely got that impression as well. Yeah, more willing to lean on kind of the traditional things that uh, media companies do storytelling talent was a thing that he mentioned in a big way and I mean that's not really a surprise when you've got one of the best NBA shows in the US that you're wanting to talk up that talent we often hear about oh yeah we're bringing in such and such innovation and we're, we're, we're rolling out this product and yeah we think this is the future of streaming whereas he was actually talking about no we still feel like storytelling and top talent and getting eyeballs through the sort of the old big traditional funnel was a, a real play for them he talks a lot about premium rights being the focus for the brand and an interesting question that came through in the Q&A afterwards was what does premium actually mean for the business and he talked in very traditional terms there you know looking at the broadest reach possible when it comes to the sports they evaluate and I think the phrase he used was sports that deliver the most value for advertisers affiliates and essentially for their balance sheet a very very traditional approach to sports media as you say and then we heard pretty much directly afterwards from Kevin Mayer former chairman of the zone and he talked in almost polar opposite terms about the value of their tech stack and how actually they see the growth of their balance sheet not from those traditional premium sports but actually from tech innovations that might be the betting that might be the ability to personalize the advertising that comes from their platform because of the data that they acquire a completely wholesale change really in how WBD are approaching their side of things yeah maybe it'd be interesting to uh, hear a little clip from that session now we're taking advantage of two other really substantial opportunities. One is advertising. I don't think that people have talked enough about the advertising capabilities in sports. First of all, it's the last place you can aggregate a really large audience in this world. You know, maybe awards ceremonies like we had the Oscars a couple of nights ago. I'm not sure I didn't look at the ratings, but those have been declining quite dramatically. Sports have held up pretty well. Um, so sports are the places where you can, you can actually aggregate a big audience. And the other thing, DAZN is streamed. So all of our audience have, you know, uh, accesses our programming on platforms that can support targeted advertising. You can take, you can dynamically insert ads that are targeted to different subgroups of the audience that are watching. That increases this, the cost of the advertising because it increases the value of the advertising. And that is something that's happening across the entertainment ecosystem. These over-the-top platforms, both in entertainment and sports, that offer the ability to have a very high-quality brand message and high-quality video environment, but do it on a targeted basis, that's taking over the world. So linear TV that does not have any targeting is really collapsing, and it's the targetability of these OTT platforms that's, that's really big. So advertising is growing quite substantially and profitably, and most advertising falls right to the bottom line. So that's been a big vector of opportunity. And the other one is betting, obviously. Um, our, the CEO, Shai Segev of DAZN, 
uh, was the CEO of Entain, the biggest, I think, I think it's the biggest I think so, yeah. uh, uh, betting operation in Europe. And he's brought, he was brought in for that reason. So we're, we're launching betting. We've launched it in several territories. That's going to add into the profitability. So you think about sports rights as this, as this fulcrum upon which you can really leverage a few big revenue streams, subscription being the biggest, but advertising and betting filling in the profitability. So when those things come to fruition, uh, you, I think you'll see DAZN reach a steady state, robust level of profitability. I think it'll, be, it'll work really well. Yeah, so George, I mean, I was off on other parts of the event during Kevin's session, but I came back in and, yeah, I mean, like the guy's got such an interesting career and experience that touches on so many different things. Like, I mean, in even the last five years, it's been, what, Disney, TikTok and DAZN, and launching ESPN Plus too, so like a real top-tier insight. Trying to look across all of those different things, what would you sort of say was the most interesting projection as to where things are going from that very, very sort of experience standpoint that he has what i thought was really interesting in that session was how a lot of what he discussed and his visions for how the industry develops contrasted quite strongly with what Luis was saying from the warner brothers discovery side in particular the bundling side of things so he was not a fan of bundling sports and entertainment together under one platform he thinks it causes significant amounts of churn and that actually entertainment users that are looking to delve into the entertainment side of things more, don't want to pay the premium price that comes with premium sports on the platform. And actually separating those two out gives a much more dedicated audience. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. I also thought some of his stories that he had taken from previous roles that he'd brought into the zone and into some of his more recent ventures were particularly interesting. Um, one story that stuck with me was around essentially, you know, boxing and, and uh, mixed martial arts that have been in his days at ESPN+. Plus. And they looked at bringing in the subscription model. So let's offer that as part of our rights portfolio that comes with the subscription. And very quickly they found with the SPM Plus that they were offering their 30-day free trial, as most subscription platforms do. And so what they would see, and probably no surprise in hindsight, but they would see huge numbers of people. I think he used a Pacquiao fight as an example. Huge swathes of users registering for the platform, signing up watching the fight as part of that 30-day free trial and then seeing immense amounts of churn over the next 30 days. And then in a few rare cases, people might sign on for an extra uh, month of subscription and then that churn would increase further. So really, they, in his words, they were leaving a lot of money on the table, but more importantly, they were leaving a lot of subscribers on the table. So actually what they did was they moved to saying, if you're already a subscriber, you can pay a minimal pay-per-view fee or a slightly reduced pay-per-view fee of what you would normally pay. But then those that are new to the platform would pay, pay let's say, $20 additional to the pay-per-view figure, and that would give them an annual subscription to ESPN+. So not only would they see you know, increased revenues from the pay-per-view figures and also the additional cost, but actually they wouldn't just have a monthly user that has a greater increase of churn. They would have an annual subscriber that gave them a much greater window with which to engage that Fan. And he took those learnings over to the zone where they were looking at a similar strategy under John Skipper, where they were looking at increasing fight sports within that subscription package. And then he pivoted that again to looking at how they can add a three month subscription window into the zone. So I thought that was a really interesting story and one that it was a great insight into just, you know, some of the economics behind the streaming industry in particular and how it's so difficult just to look at subscription revenues to make money back on these on the huge value of these live rights. Also, just an interesting window into those worlds, just how those kind of strategies transfer from one business to the next. Right. I mean, like the, the sort of the next session up on that was um, the NBC sports session with, with Rick Cordella. 
recently named president of uh, NBC Sports. And like that, what he was saying kind of chimes into some of those themes too. But it, it was more in reference to the Premier League and like what that product means for them and the fans that they are able to tap into. In a way, you have like with Vice Sports and it's a kind of very dedicated, loyal following for a fighter. But they will churn in and churn out based on what's coming in. The Premier League, they love it because it retains their subscribers for at least that window. And then it's up to them in that time to try and capture that audience and keep them active on Peacock mm. outside of those things. Because obviously, obviously they've got the big, the big ticket stuff, the NFL as well, but that runs kind of concurrently. On the, on the sort of converse to Kevin Mayer actually, talking about the value of their entertainment stuff almost to carry them through and, and provide that additional reason to stay on the platform. So it's, it's always interesting when you come to these things and you hear about sort of different ways to skin the same cat. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the, the, a great great way of putting it because a lot of it came down to the economics side of it. And I think it's pretty clear and the consensus this morning has been subscription is not the way forward alone, right? You, mm. You're not going to be able to rely on subscriptions alone to break even or, or make a profit on, on the live rights, particularly with the figures that are being quoted around. And I thought Kevin was really interesting looking at Zone how they're going to increase those revenues and that some of the, I think it's 2024, they're looking at posting their first annual profit and the fourth quarter of this year will be the first profitable quarter. And a lot of that gap he mentioned was from betting, as I've mentioned before, but what he said really interesting to me was that it's very inelastic demand for subscription platforms. You can't just jack up the price and expect people to pay for the rights. It's just not going to happen. So actually, you need to look at alternative revenue sources. And we're seeing that. We saw how we had a fast masterclass this morning and looking at the role advertising has got to play in these streaming platforms. And he was really interesting talking about how, you know, as an owned and operated platform and the ability to aggregate the data from your audience and sell that at a much higher rate to advertisers because they're targeted. You know, it's what the online world allows you, which linear is lacking so much. And I think the insinuation was one of the reasons the RSN business might be struggling is because that's on an even more localized level that you're just not able to gain the same traction from advertisers that you can if you're able to capture the data of the usage and the fan. Good time to bring up the RSN stuff. We've got some interesting RSN sessions coming up this afternoon. Bally Sports this afternoon, or is that? Yes, that's right. Michael Schneider, general manager at Bally Sports Plus. I think he's going to be expecting a lot of questions about uh, the state of their business. More kind of in focus, I guess, with when and when they might go bankrupt. Maybe we should check back in after that session and uh, see if he's had an answer for us. Yeah, see, see what uh, what zingers you've delivered from the Sports Pro Corner this afternoon as, <laughs> as, as Paul Michael steps onto the stage. <laughs> no pressure. Cheers, George. Cheers, Tom. Hello, Tom. Good to see you again at the end of day one of this year's OTT USA Summit. Um, now, before we start, I'm actually quite glad you've carved out some time to chat to me today, Tom. I know uh, you've blown up a bit over the Sports Pro Media socials. Am I right in saying? Oh, you put me on the spot here, George. Yeah, somehow it's contrived that I've managed to uh, become an influencer. Um, if you want to see my marvellous performance in the uh, in the batting cages down here at City Field, check out sportspro.media on, uh, on your favourite Instagram channel and you can see me dominate dominate the pitching crew down there it's a bit of a shame that the oscars took place on sunday rather than this coming weekend though i think there might be a surprise category in the short film section yeah i'm actually uh, i was actually auditioning for a part in moneyball 2 well i think zoolander 3 is probably more like uh, where you'll be getting it with that uh, with the blue steel that you were throwing out um, on the walkthrough anyway we'll, we'll leave that to the imagination of our viewers but uh, our listeners um i should say but tom let's let's talk a bit more seriously how have you found uh, this afternoon's content 
probably no surprise really interesting um <laughs> i am paid to say that but no like i mean it genuinely so we've had a couple of like quite different sessions uh, we're sat right now in the uh in the piazza club they're actually just packing down around us and we're uh, the last remaining people here hardest workers aren't we always content never sleeps george <laughs> we had uh, yeah a sort of nice trio of sessions all talking about slightly different things we had Oren sepstein from ufc followed by michael schneider the coo of bally sports and then we ended up with like a really really fascinating speaker actually sheila johnson who's um the president of the WNBA's washington mystics uh, obviously part of monumental sports entertainment founder of bet yeah a, a sort of really inspirational character and figure and just had a yeah re- really passionate talker too which made for a great session let's start with Sheila's session I've had the the good fortune having been involved in bringing her to the event of you know hearing in depth her story and how she moved into the sporting world having previously worked more in sort of the entertainment side of things with television I think the phrase she used today which I really enjoyed was uh, I wanted to buy the, the mystics and, and, and the capitals and thought I'm going to make an offer that they can't refuse which she went ahead and did and sort of since then it's a pretty extraordinary story she talked about using her own capital to rebuild the locker rooms appropriate for the team and really it was a story of starting from scratch it's not sort of a, a vanity purchase that I think a lot of people see you know wealthy entrepreneurs making into the world of sports it was a proper sort of let's build something from the ground up and let's create a bit of a legacy and let's create a, a property that, that that's going to be professionalized and that's going to be set up for success going forward and, and doing the hard yards first i thought it was a, a really inspiring story it brought home to me actually the challenge ahead for for those women's sport properties here like a lot of the narrative in the uk at the moment is is all really really positive we've seen a lot of growth around the wsl for example what you got here is like they know how i mean sheila johnson knows especially how how big the potential of those properties are uh, especially the mystics but there's still a lot of frustration around what they're not getting and what they're not getting is media coverage and she was so keen to bang that home i mean i spoke to her afterwards a little bit about wmba's relationship with espn and look she didn't want to she didn't want to badmouth ESPN at all. She was full of praise for like for ESPN as a partner, but I think there's a kind of a feeling that she wants more from the US media in terms of coverage. She talked about wanting three six five media coverage for for the WNBA and, and women's properties because like that that is just providing equity with what you see in the men's leagues and capital as well right yeah i think she, she was really clear in drawing the links between increased media coverage and corporate sponsorship and how corporate sponsorships got to be the foundation of the next stage of growth and attracting you know wealthy corporate sponsors that drive that growth and providing the sort of financial capital to drive that growth is so important she also admitted something to me which was quite interesting i asked her about the sort of the role that technology could play and she she said that like partly probably because of that lack of capital that women's sports hadn't been able to perhaps draw on the benefits of technology in the same way that men's had because they're still doing some of the basic things they're that step backward that's kind of missing they've got to use technology in a way that can help them make that leap but they're still like properties like the mystics are still educating themselves in how they do that it's interesting um to hear you say that because earlier in the day i I listened to the 
social media focused panel which looked at alongside TikTok, the Mets, Areto Labs and Just Women Sports about how you can use TikTok to sort of grow your audiences and Hayley Rosen who's the founder of Just Women Sports and the CEO and a former athlete herself she actually talked about the use of technology being a competitive advantage compared to men's sports and that women's sports building in a digital era and therefore it has the opportunity to be you know dynamic and, and much more flexible and, and nimble in the way it operates and she was saying that whilst women's sports is a small audience at the moment it's a hyper engaged one compared to the men's sports in particular and that actually it's unhelpful to try and follow the paradigms of men's sports and trying to replicate them and that actually a lot of those metrics can be vanity numbers that we see across men's sports you know that every sports property and tiktok really drove this home as well is that having 10 you know highly engaged followers is preferable to having 100 you know, dormant ones right and that women's sports in that position is just a case of increasing and expanding that reach organically because the engagement's there and with the engagement comes the opportunity to get the return on investment that you might not get from just pure vanity metrics like followers and reach interestingly uh, that kind of leads kind of backward through the through the sessions into michael schneider's session from from valley sports because he was talking about the potential opportunity for nwsl i mean Let's. I think we need to preface this conversation by talking about the fact that basically everything that Michael Schneider said was with a disclaimer. Yeah, it comes comes with a disclaimer that they're currently going through some very hard times, and by very hard times, near, meaning near bankruptcy. The, the B word was was flown around with, with wanton abandon today. Yeah, uh, and so that any, anything that he was saying was purely kind of speculative. But interesting to hear someone that runs that kind of business talk about the opportunity for women's properties in that way, and. Um, I actually thought I, I kind of thought that whole session was going to be a lot of him just talking about what they're trying to do, like basically trying to defend the current business model. But he was actually saying that trying to move that conversation on and talk about what the opportunity is there for RSNs in the future. And like, it's not something in Europe that we're particularly familiar with as a model. Like they're mm. they're these kind of. I was going to ask if you can quickly explain the RSN. Model. I mean, I can try. I, I'm not an expert myself, but uh, essentially these are like local TV stations which provide sports coverage, and they are hyper local. So we're talking about networks which serve just New York or even smaller, like the networks that serve just New Orleans or just Cincinnati, like. Uh, and uh, the equivalent for that in I don't know would be a would be a, a network in Europe which serves just Madrid or just Paris or just London, and actually is geolocked to that location and only shows the sports teams in those locations and doesn't even always show all of the all of the sports teams in that. So, what's going on with them is interesting, and I think. Like for a sort of more in depth on that, you could probably go to the Streamtime podcast. Those guys have a little bit more expertise. And they have done a deep dive in the past. Yeah, so it, very good exactly. with William Mao from Octagon. Yeah, exactly. The quick notes on that is that basically, Bally Sports is kind of on the verge of collapse. But what he was saying was that this is kind of where they're at now in terms of D 2 C and streaming with 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 RSNs. Is it's sort of like version one point and it almost kind of needs to fail in order to get to the next point, and mm. then that's where kind of the opportunity lies. If you can just talk me through the logic behind that a little bit. So the RSM business model, a, a lot of the discussion today has been around the challenges that it faces and, and why the economics that underlie it aren't particularly sound. Why is that? Why is it such a challenging business model to make work? The, one of the reasons they're in trouble is that the sort of the economics are, are, are quite simple. The amount they're able to bring in from cable subscriptions, from carriage fees, is not matching what's going out, and that's why they're going out of business. The revenues aren't coming in 
from one side to match the other. And that's a challenge faced by linear channels in general that don't have a, a complementary OTT offering. Exactly. But in the case of RSNs, it's exacerbated by the fact that that's been the business model for so long that they've relied upon. And actually, it's now dwindled to the point where it's kind of no longer viable. So in an odd way, we've talked about the, the conversation around streaming, I think, has changed so much in the last five years from being this kind of great saviour um, to being a kind of, well, actually, what is the opportunity here? Trying to figure that out. And the RSNs are clearly still playing catch up. Like most of them are, are sort of very financially stricken. A lot of the big media companies are looking to divest with them. And Bally Sports, at least it sounds like it's trying to make it work and seize the opportunity indeed to, to do that because they know that there's a fan there that they can talk to and wants their product. It's just making sure that they get that right. And that comes down to like really basic things like pricing. Like Microsoft admitted today that they actually probably didn't price their product right. Like they could they couldn't should have charged more because they're trying to compete with cable, they're trying to compete with other streaming services that are broader and a national. And they had th- th- those economics just weren't adding up at the moment. So that's the reset that they've got to go through. And Michael sort of alluded to a world he could see where there was one platform that contained multiple RSNs from across the different regions. Do you see that being, you know, a potential route that they could go down, like almost aggregating the different different RSN platforms under one roof? The stage they've got to get to, I mean, they, so they've got, uh, I think it's in the teens, the number of markets that they're in. And they're they're not going to be able to expand that because they'd have to buy up networks to do to do so or they don't have any money. But you can definitely see why it would work or why it can work. Um, so one company controlling all of these local D2C products, being able to generate those sort of insights that D2C offers. But a more like holistic fan experience is just beyond just the live rights offering. Because he talked about partnering with their with the local teams. Yeah partnering you know local fan bases to create that personalized hyper local offering that he sees a huge market in right yeah but also having a like having an offering that works 365 days a year so like if you're in a market where the the teams that are covered are nhl and nba then that's a that's a chunk of the year that you're missing because you don't have the mlb team to provide you that 365 day a year coverage and therefore that doesn't give you the uh the sort of the the selling point to to keep a to keep a subscriber from churning out of your product. Talking of that move to D to C, um, to take it back to Kevin Mayer's session earlier in the day, which I know we've we've already discussed during our lunch break, he he talked a little bit about the NFL Game Pass deal that's recently been signed. Um, NFL Game Pass moving into the DAZN ecosystem away from being a standalone product that's sort of owned and operated by the NFL, and he sort of alluded to the fact that that is primarily because. Both the NFL and the zone see the value in aggregation, and that a DTC product as a standalone doesn't generate a critical mass in terms of audience to really monetize it properly and to sort of get that that reach that that they're looking for, particularly when it comes to new subscribers. Do you I mean do you see that being a wider trend? Other properties like the NBA, for instance, that have had particular success as the first mover in that DTC space, that there's gonna be a move back towards aggregating these platforms and these offerings into wider service platforms, and that's gonna present even more of a headwind to the likes of Pally Sports. But to be clear, I mean that that Game Pass to Zone deal doesn't apply in the US. That's an international deal. So I think what Kevin was talking about there makes sense overseas but i actually think the nfl and the nba in the us have enough of an addressable market that they can make their standalone products work at home i I completely see the point overseas but i think nfl game pass it it works for i think nba probably feels like it can 
keep going with its uh, its own product for a while without having to go into an aggregated platform. But we'll see. Like I, I think they're they're probably the two biggest. Maybe the Premier League is another one that could could do something like that. Because the inverse is true with the Premier League. Both Chris Stone, our community lead, and, and Nick Meacham, our CEO, and obviously our brothers in arms at the Streamtime podcast, they gave their presentation today comparing the European and the US markets. And the Premier League is a bit of a quirk in the fact that it generates significantly more rights revenue internationally rather than domestically. So there's almost the inverse relationship for the Premier League, right? Yes. I mean, that's definitely true. Uh, we'll probably see... I think the domestic market overtake that international market again in the next cycle, but that's just because there's a little bit more competition in the home market again. But yeah, in terms of that addressable market and the product that they could put out, those are the three. Those are the three stand-up properties: so NFL, NBA, and Premier League. They could all experiment in different things and all enjoy success in different ways. I don't necessarily think that when it comes to those things, there's many ways to skin that cat. I think I said that this morning as well. But they could all take different ways and all find success, and they'll there might not be anything in, anything that even ties up the, those successes, if you see what I mean. I do indeed. Now, before I leave you this evening to enjoy your first cause light of the evening, I thought we'd quickly touch on the UFC in their session, looking at their international growth and the range of markets that they're in and some of the numbers they mentioned. I think there's 170 territories they're, they're operating in. And, and I think the, the phrase Lawrence Epstein used, who's their, their chief operating officer, was that they're seeing substantial growth in every single one of those markets. They're a pretty incredible international success story. Yeah, that, no doubt. And I mean, it, that's I think that comes from being a market leader in that sport. Like it's a it's still a relatively new sport, MMA, right? This year is actually the 30th year since the first ever uh, UFC won. So, I mean, like when you think about that compared to like yeah the hundreds of years of football or the tens and tens of years of nfl or tens and tens of years of nba in terms of their age and maturity as properties yeah ufc has grown an incredible amount in a short period of time do you think that gives them an advantage yeah i think it does because they can still act like a challenge yeah and they do and like one of the interesting i think that was sort of mentioned and i hadn't really thought about this way before is the verticals that they work in and the, the seven verticals and the fact that they like are able to push in every single one of them so i can't rattle them all off the top of my head but there was media rights, there was D2C, there was sponsorship, there was social, there was events, and there was pay-per-view. I'm probably missing one. but A I've... valiant effort, I will say. <laughs> Thank you. But like, they get to try new things in each, in each and every one of them. One of them being their sort of, like they can take di- unique approaches in different markets and be bespoke, which was something that Lawrence Epstein was like quite, yeah, quite forceful in in ramming home, especially in Brazil. I think that was a that was a really yeah. interesting case study. So they have a bespoke strategy for all of those 170 territories. I mean, that's not true, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I, would, I would assume that. Otherwise, someone in their strategy department's working long hours. <laughs> We're only halfway through the event, um, uh, but there's still plenty to come. What are you looking forward to tomorrow? Well, it's a very good question, Tom. Selfishly, from my point of view, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with um, the team at the ATP Tour and PJ Tour around their new Netflix docuseries. Um, particularly excited to hear sort of how they came about and some of the metrics that they're seeing in the early few weeks of their release. And actually, having talking spoken to them a little bit previously about it, just looking at actually what's the impact of the wider docuseries ecosystem and in an algorithmic world you know how does the impact of drive to survive potentially impact full swing 
impact breakpoint. I, I hadn't really considered how that business model might work. Um, so kind of here, keen to to delve into that in a little bit more detail. But also, we've talked a lot about um, today about the NFL and some new media carriage deals. YouTube TV being one of them for, for the Sunday night ticket. Well, tomorrow morning, we have Marie Donoghue from Amazon Prime talking about their Thursday night football deal as well. And Amazon Prime's sort of re-entry into the American broadcast market in a pretty major way so i'm keen to hear what their plans are there yeah i i think it'd be really interesting to hear from me on i mean they've just basically wrapped up their first season with the, with the nfl as the the sole um broadcast partner for thursday night football but not just that they've become a massive broadcaster outside the us too like i mean their, their portfolio of rights in europe is is really really strong amongst some of the uh, some strongest media company like properties of anyone really so yeah interested to hear what they've got to say about that because they're coming at it from a completely different place to most of the people that we're talking to or the most of the people that we hear from in that they are essentially a streaming first product in a way that not even a design for example is well if you haven't been snapped up by someone like amazon prime or espn or disney as their, their new front of house talent then it will be joined by you tomorrow in uh, the various breaks to debrief some of the sessions but until then thanks for your time tom yeah cheers george speak to you tomorrow okay george gotta be quite quiet but where are we I know we're whispering at the back like naughty schoolboys, Tom, but we're at the back of the main stage as we listen to Blake Stuchin, the vice president and head of digital media and business development at the NFL, talking to Sports Bros' very own Chris Stone. So before we interrupt too many people in this session, let's just listen to some of the insights from the stage. One example of that that, you know, came up actually from the 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 topic earlier today talking about some of the Netflix series that we're really excited about is what we're doing with Skydance. So um, about two years ago, we looked at NFL films and we have such a, a really incredible asset in NFL films. Again, for those that don't know, for 61 years, NFL films has been this production arm of the NFL. It is the most awarded uh, sports programming studio in the world by Emmy wins, by any other sort of accolade. They really are tremendous at what they do. They also, to their credit, recognize that most of what they do is documentaries and access-driven shows primarily about the NFL. It's a really specific type of storytelling. We looked across the broader entertainment landscape. Here we are at a streaming conference, not just for sports, but thinking about the growth in streamers, saying that the media strategy that we've had for decades that served us really well, which is putting our content on the most dominant reach platforms of the day, historically broadcast TV and pay TV, that still works. We feel really good about that, but no doubt it's evolving and it's changing and there's more choice than ever before. How do we make sure that we can have content and have things that resonate with people when they're opening up Apple TV+, Plus, when they're opening up Amazon Prime, when they're opening up Netflix. Well, the first is our live games, and we feel pretty good about where we've landed there. But what about every other second of the day? That's where the partnership with Skydance comes in. Um, what we sought to do was find a partner that had capabilities in all the areas that we really don't. Things like scripted programming, something that NFL Films does not do at all, but that we really value. Other types of unscripted programming, like cooking shows, travel shows, fitness, all kinds of other things that we can do, animated kids shows. Um, Skydance does all of that. For clarity, Skydance is the Hollywood studio behind Top Gun Maverick and Mission Impossible. They're also one of the largest suppliers uh, as an independent 
to the streamers. And independent was important to us because as we thought about the different ways that we could work with this, there were many streaming services, many of whom are our partners, like Disney, like Amazon, of course, that are looking for content for their own services. We want it to be broad. We want it to be everywhere. So it was important that we work with an independent that's looking to supply everyone. Tom, I'm sat with you in the Piazza Club after the morning sessions. We're bathed in golden sunshine after yesterday's stormy conditions in New York. There's been a bit of a storm on stage as well. How have you found this morning's sessions? Well, we've just sat through, sat through probably uh, makes that sound a little bit less enjoyable than it was, but um, we just just wrapped up the, the NFL session hosted by um, some bloke called Chris Stone, never heard of him, <laughs> with uh, with Blake Sutchin from the NFL. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been an action-packed agenda and a good way to head into lunch as we uh, close to wrapping up at OTT USA. We've just been hearing from Blake around the the NFL and their content, their content strategy, um, obviously the NFL being the absolute sort of media behemoth that it is these days. Um, it's pretty interesting to hear about, you know, some of the less glamorous side of it, their own original content, their own sort of self-produced content. How did you find that, Tom? Yeah, I think that was, um, for me, most interesting because like, they, they've wrapped up their media rights deals now. So like we sort of know where that's going to be, at least in the US anyway. There's some things to happen overseas, but in terms of real real takeaways from that session, like what he was talking about with how they're looking to develop NFL films and this p- partnership with Skydance, which was announced last year, uh, and their plans for that. Yeah, when you've got a 10-year rights deal, it gives you that flexibility to be like, okay, well, now we've done that, those are coming through. What else can we do on top of that to really add value to our product? And from what it sounds like, they're going to try everything. Like There was talks about animations, there was talks about feature-length films, there was talked about kids' shows. This is sort of over and above like shorter form social content too. So like what what they've got now is a really long run, runway to play with stuff and figure out what they want to do in the in this kind of new era of their next line of right cycle. And with that right cycle, I'm right in saying it's it's a hundred billion or more for the next ten years, right? Yeah. It gives gives them quite a significant financial cushion really to be able to experiment, to be able to try new things. One that I have my eye on is the upcoming Netflix series next year around the four quarterbacks. They really are sort of open to exploring every avenue here. That again, I mean it kind of speaks to a few different things that we've been hearing over the last couple of days but it's another partner for the nfl like it was sort of not really positioned in that way but you've got all of these major media brands that they work with i mean we've heard from youtube but espn and obviously the sort of the main network cbs nbc uh, and fox but on top of that they've they've added in another major sort of tech player in Netflix. So I'm excited about seeing this quarterback show, but that's probably not going to be the last thing that they do there. Mm. And this Skydance partnership as well, it gives them the flexibility and the independence away from not being tied to one single media organization to go and say like, okay, well, we've made this great content with our in-house NFL films or with our partner Skydance and where can we take it? Where works for this thing that we produced? And that gives them ultimate flexibility as well in terms of the ability to experiment, the ability to also you know, retain control over what's going into that as well, which I think some other organisations have to relinquish as we go through. The relinquishing part is interesting because there was a lot of talk actually about a potential sale of NFL films, especially when it was connected to the Sunday ticket and those talks with um, with Apple. There was a lot of there was a lot of sort of media speculation that actually NFL media and NFL NFL films being part of that could have been included in a deal because they were looking to 
to raise money, but instead, I don't know whether or not this is a deliberate thing or something that was kind of like, well, I guess if that's not happened, then it gives us the, we can now start thinking about this in a different way. But it, yeah, it seems like they're going to be spending the majority of the duration, at least on the media side for the next that next cycle, um, thinking about all of the other things that they can do that aren't simply producing live games. Because when it comes, when I mean, like in the in the sort of stark face of it, they, they, their, their live games and that kind of distribution, all that side of it is locked up. Like, they are the biggest thing, like, without a shadow of a doubt. Let's talk about another one of the NFL's media partners and our opening keynote this morning, Marie Donoghue from Amazon Prime Video. Um, what were your takes from that? Yeah, I, I think for me, the, the thing about Amazon there is that they are um, obviously very young in this, and I think that was something that Marie had sort of intimated but also the fact that that for them they see as an advantage like the fact that they are skewing younger than the other broadcasters and that's something that they are very mm. keen to talk about probably because it plays well with advertisers but also that it because it goes contrary to the most of the media narratives around sports broadcast specifically i, I think at one, to, one point she kind of referred to um, Amazon Prime is being almost like a utility, um, which I thought was interesting. I mean, like, I don't know. I, d- I haven't checked out what the kind of the Prime subscriber numbers are in the US because it, I can't imagine that having a Prime subscription comes across paying your energy bill. But uh, if if it's getting up to near that levels for her to talk about it, that's that's certainly interesting. That came on the back of a number of quite interesting comments talking about sport being the safest content you can buy, really, in terms of you can guarantee what you're going to get. You can guarantee certain levels of engagement that you can't with other forms. Forms of content you can guarantee a success from like a reception point of view right but what she did highlight and not as obviously no state secret is that getting that right financially is a much much harder task and when you consider something like amazon prime being compared to a utility and being so widespread you've got to think that the challenge there to monetize that most effectively is is really difficult right because the subscriber the sort of the attribution of subscriber revenue to the sports product is much much more difficult to define and then also she talked about the um integrating e-commerce into the experience and being really wary of including that as part of the viewing experience because it's taking fans away from the platform it's one of the only times within the amazon ecosystem that they're not joined up right that they're taking you away from the live broadcast and potentially affecting their their engagement stats yeah i i I'm actually a bit amazed that they haven't really nailed that thing yet. I, I think a few years ago, there was a sort of widespread assumption, especially when you saw them doing deals with, with Spurs to integrate like a Tottenham Hotspur e-commerce experience into the Amazon actual sales platform. And that would have a plug-in with their All or Nothing series. And actually, we didn't really see that. It didn't come to didn't come to fruition in the same way. Uh, maybe the technology's not there. I, I kind of refuse to believe that. I think for me, it's a bit of a kind of case of, they probably don't think it's worth investing in yet as opposed to you couldn't do it if they wanted to but i find that interesting though i mean it's something that would surprise me you'd think given the level of interest in e-commerce around sports that it would be a, a pretty simple win right oh yeah absolutely like you'd think i say you're watching a game you go oh right yeah i like that guy's shoes or i like that guy's jersey can i click on it that that to me seems like an extremely logical step and maybe it is getting that capture right or maybe it's maybe it's the platforms themselves i can't claim to be a platform expert but i guess we're still kind of maybe we're thinking ahead of it too much and <laughs> partly i guess we do hear this similarly is like firstly you've got to get the stream right i can't remember who was said it was uh, said it yesterday but like for netflix it's quite easy to produce uh, it's quite easy to deliver a, like a vod experience because they can compress stuff and then when it came to deliver it they, they know that they've got that 
You can run something tens and tens of times through an algorithm. Yeah, exactly. Whereas live, you don't you get one chance of doing it. So if you don't get the live right, um, actually any of the other bells and whistles are irrelevant. So and you don't get too many bites of the cherry either, right? I mean, we seen with the zone last year and their troubles in their European streaming. It's a tough it's a tough reputation to to shed, right? Once you don't have that reliability and the scalability for your streams, it's very difficult to get their reputation back. Yeah, so probably for them at this stage, it's like okay, let's get the let's get the basic part right, and then maybe we add the uh, the other parts in later. Well, it definitely struck me from that session as if it's just the the very beginning of of Amazon's Amazon's foray into the American rights market. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Should we have some lunch? Let's go. Well, Tom, congratulations, we've made it. Uh, we're now at the end of the second day of the OTT Summit, and that means the end of the event. Now, to celebrate the conclusion of a great couple of days, we're going to channel our inner sky sports as we stroll through the networking area as everyone enjoys a beverage or two to close out the event. And we're going to be doing our Martin Brundle impression by catching unawares some delegates as they give their delegates and speakers as they give their views on what they've enjoyed in particular over the last couple of days. So let's see what we should find, Tom. Yep. Who have we got in our sights first? So first up, we have collared an unassuming uh, Mr. Jabari Young, who's just taken part in our closing session of the event. Jabari, how have you found things today? Uh, you know what, listen, I, I've always enjoyed coming to sports pro events. Um, it's not only the panels, which I was great to be a part of, and you, you hear people, but it's the networking, right? Sitting here talking to you guys, right? Y'all just came up to me networking. It's, it's good to see people, especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic. Like, we've been sitting on the sidelines and really not been able to move around. So to see this event back in person again is great. So it's always good to see the people and then you just meet so many fascinating companies and stories along the way, and, and, and it just allows you to understand what the business is going, different perspectives on the business. So I, I've always loved these type of events. You're probably going to take the award for the snappiest dress across the <laughs> event. Uh, Thank you. Very Thank you. very nice suit you Thank got you. on there. But um, before we go, I know yeah. you were involved in, in uh, the Streaming war session just now, looking at some of the different platforms and across the U.S. media ecosystem. And probably now more than ever, there's just a huge number of platforms that are involved in the sports game. Yeah. What were your thoughts on you know some of the, the platforms you, you covered earlier? Well, you know, listen, a lot of this stuff, we're still, uh, it's a wait and see. You know, I, I think there's that, you know, we, we want to jump and see what's next, what's next, what's going to come, what's, how are you going to release this revenue? It's like, no, let's relax, enjoy the chaos, uh, because with that chaos comes a lot of innovation. And so we saw in, during the pandemic as companies position themselves, going to get the tech, going to get the IP to make sure that they have a future. Now it's just about putting it in play. You know, it's about seeing who's going to, you know, take over the streaming wars, if there's going to be a number one, if vol- volatility, all of that stuff. I'm enjoying the chaos, especially with the RSN, you know, stuff in, in flux. So, um, right now, if I said it on stage, I'll say it again. I think Amazon's winning. Uh, I like what they're doing. They're perfect position. Netflix is right behind them. We'll see what, what else is going to come. But enjoy the innovation that's going to come over the next few years because there's going to be a lot of it. Great time to be a sport business reporter at Forbes. It is, right? Because it's all about the money anyway. And that's, you know, that's all we talk about. But, you know, it, it, not only is it a great time to be you know, at Forbes anytime, anywhere, uh, because the business side is ready to go through some change. The last time we saw that, again, was at the beginning during the pandemic when somebody took a rock, right, the virus, and put it through the glass window, and you got a chance to see sports exposed. It was butt naked, right? You saw all the revenue, where it comes in from, where it stops at. What you're going to see over the next few years with streaming continuing to develop with, uh, you know, the, 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 the latency continuing to get better and better, you'll see more innovation. And so it is a great time to, to be in, in this sector. I can't lie. 
Well, embracing the chaos is probably the Absolutely. theme of this Embrace walkthrough uh, as well. So yeah. thanks for your time, Jabari. No Enjoy your drinks. Thanks, Jabari. We've managed to collar Magnus Fenson. Magnus, thanks very much for joining us. Thank How you. have you found the last couple of days? It's been really good. It's been really good. A bit cold outside, though, but it's been really good. And I, I found the presentations really interesting. Opening up with Kevin Mayer was probably the best one, actually. Any other sessions that have caught your eye over the last couple of days? I think in general it's been good. It's been yeah. really good. And I love that you're mixing in the sort of the, the little bit more humorous ones in, in between the, the more serious ones. Good. It's definitely something we're looking to do. Um, what are some of the key takeaways that you're going to be taking from the last couple of days and implementing in your day to day? I found the last summarizing panel with the winners of the Stream Awards pretty interesting because I, I don't think we'll have a winner. I think we'll have multiple winners in the Stream Awards. Mm -hmm. And you need to cater for all uh, audiences out there, in niche sports, big sports, and all that in between. Who are you picking as your winner of the Streaming Wars going forward? I would say Google. Google? We'll keep an eye on that. Magnus, thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, we've managed to find Gillian Sokovitz, the um, event host that we've had over the last couple of days. Gillian, you've been in a, in a pretty unique position that you've been able to catch almost every second of the content that's been on the main stage. Um, how have you found it? What have you found particularly interesting? I think for me, it was the variety of voices of people coming in, the variety of ages, backgrounds, culture, everything. And... I think it was thought-provoking to know what the big executives at like um, a Discovery Warner situation at Bleacher Report, what they're looking for. And the story I kept hearing was storytelling. So for us, for me now, part of the MLS and Apple launch, which is only three weeks old, it was nice to hear what the other streaming services want to do. I was literally taking notes like with buzzwords and things like that, things that tomorrow morning when I have my MLS production meeting, uh, I'm going to bring up, like, we need to be doing more of this. Apple's Asian on the inside. <laughs> we, a lot of the conversation the last couple of days has been around, you know, some of the, the big tech re-entry into the live sports rights. Obviously, with the Apple MLS deal, you're right at the heart of that new change. How do you see that landscape evolving over the next couple of years? And, and what do you think the role that, you know, the big tech platforms like Apple and Amazon have to play in that? I think the most interesting part about what Apple has been able to do for MLS, and I think we all know that this is a template to see, does this work? Does one league going on at one streaming service work? But I think for me, the biggest thing is the fact of how there's no blackouts, which are a constant problem in American television. Uh, you can watch in 180-something countries. You know, there's been really great stories about a Nigerian player, for example, who played for Cincinnati. His parents, I think, had never seen him play football, right? Because he's playing in random leagues across the world. They didn't only see him play this game, but they saw him score his first goal because they're watching on their device in Nigeria. So that was great. But it's definitely an exciting trend to, to keep abreast of as the new season starts. Are you excited? I am so excited. I think something I was telling um, Chris and Nick about is the MLS fans have been complaining for a long time about things like quality of picture, graphics, lack of pre and post game shows. And what I'm really excited about is the fans have been very, very happy. I'll be honest, none of us knew how this was going to go. But now we're three weeks into a 10-year deal and there's a lot more that we have to do to keep people happy. Well, Gillian, thanks for your time and uh, excited to see the new season. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Now, Tom, I, I know as the famous saying goes, never get between 
an end of event delegate and their drink. But should we try and call her one more? Yeah, I see. We call uh, it a day? I see a guy who uh, potentially has. He's on another show, I think. I don't know if you've heard of it. Another the, show, one of our sister show, Chris Stone. Chris, how have you found the last couple of days of the event? It's been really good. I, you know, I, it, anyone that's listened to any podcast that includes both George and I, it's always difficult to give him credit for anything. But I do have to say the work him and Will Tubbs did in terms of the lineup, it's without a doubt the best lineup we've ever had from an agenda perspective in terms of the scale, the quality, the depth of everything. So, yeah, it's just a great, great show. It's very kind. Chris, in your community lead role, you talk to lots of different pockets of the industry. What have you sort of heard across the last couple of days of some of the emerging trends and themes that we should be keeping an eye on, you know, moving forward? I think the interesting thing is you spoke to a lot of people 12 months ago that probably thought they had things figured out. And obviously while we were here, we had the breaking news about Bally Sports and what's happening from an RSN perspective. The RSN business is something that's been a concrete part of broadcasting here for decades. And that's going to change things. And I think what people are starting to realize is as confident as they were 12 months ago, there's a lot more uncertainty now and things are going to change. And when we come back here in 12 months, they'll be totally different again. So I think there's a lot of people just having to reevaluate what they thought they knew. It's felt as if, you know, a previous OTT summits often focus on content delivery, content types, you know, engagement strategies, etc. The vast majority of the focus over the last couple of days has been around economics, right? Monetization, how you deliver your return on the massive investments that are being made across live rights. You've been looking across your session, some of the winners and losers from that battle. What do you think is going to be the key strategy going forward to try and make the money back on some of those rights and to monetize further? Well, the USA is different from some of the other stuff we do where all these new deals have all been signed within basically the last 12 to 18 months and the NBA is still coming and those deals are signed for like 10 years. So it's a completely different scale when we talk about the Premier League or the Liga Bundesliga and they're doing things on these three-year cycles where things can be quite fluid. Uh, the challenge is going to be just how do you, as you say, make back that investment. Um, something that I think everyone's kind of talking about at the moment or trying to figure out the best way to do it is... How do you keep people in the off-season? You know, live content, everyone knows people come for that. That's sort of the anchor. But what do you do with all those other moments? How do you keep people coming in? How do you keep monetizing, keeping them engaged for those four or five months during the off-season? Because you know people are going to tune up for the live, but what do you do in all those other moments? That's really, I think, where you're going to be able to have an opportunity to make up some of those margins. Well, Chris, we certainly enjoyed hearing your dose of tones over the last couple of days, and thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, George. Tom, it looks like we've run out of road here when it comes to our delegate walk. I think there's been a very successful little brundle down there, <laughs> down through the bar. Um, but no celebrity spotted thus far. Not yet. I mean, we may be, uh, I think that might be Pat Mahomes over yeah. there. But that's probably a good place to leave it. Should we go yeah. get a beer? Let's do it. Yeah.